This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of May 23rd, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Well, if all goes according to the traditions established over the last 111 years, about 350,000 people will pack the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on May 29th. The green flag will drop, sending 33 cars around a two and a half mile oval at about 220 miles an hour. And in about three, three and a half hours, we'll have a new, or perhaps repeat, maybe five time winner of the greatest spectacle in racing. And who knows, maybe a few hours later, Doug Bowles will breathe a huge sigh of relief. As most racing fans know, Doug Bowles is president of the Speedway, but that title isn't quite adequate. A lifelong fan of Indianapolis's most powerful cultural touchstone, Bowles is the Speedway's chief evangelist. Its omnipresent public face and its buck stops here, customer service guru. And beyond presiding over the day-to-day management of a 300-acre venue that hosts dozens of large, complicated events annually, he is the protector of its legacy as Indiana's symbol of industry and speed, while lifting its vital role in Indianapolis's aspirations to create strong connections between innovative industries. That's important, of course, although to thousands of fans on race day, he is the guy in the suit and tie who remembers your family, where you traditionally sit, and is happy as hell to take a picture with you, the kids, grandma and grandpa, and the cooler. The 106th running of the Indianapolis 500 is stuffed with storylines. This is the first 500 to have a full crowd since automotive mogul Roger Penske bought the Speedway, the IndyCar series, and several related businesses in 2019. The crowd will get to see the reported $30 million in improvements to the Speedway made by Penske. And after this year's race, the executive team at Penske Entertainment will begin to zero in on how to use the hundreds of acres of largely undeveloped land Penske owns adjacent to the Speedway. And that's just one of the many topics discussed in my interview this week with Doug Bowles. We hit on how the Speedway might factor into plans from the Formula One series to increase its presence in America. We take a dive into Doug's history at the track, discussing how he fell in love with it in 1977 and his tenure some 20 years ago as co-owner of Panther Racing. Mostly though, we discuss what his life is like during the month of May as the ringmaster of the Oval for the biggest racing event on the planet. And if it seems like Doug is a little manic during the interview, it's because I asked him specifically beforehand if we could keep a brisk pace so we could get in all of my questions. Uh, We almost did it. Of course, he was happy to oblige. So here we go. As they say on race today, green, green, green. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the IBJ podcast, Doug Bowles, president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, It's a loaded question, but how are you today? I'm good today. So last night was the first night that I actually spent the night here at the Speedway. So that means instead of getting home at one in the morning and getting to bed at you know one forty-five or two, and then turning around and coming back down here at five, I get ex- I got extra sleep. So yeah, it's fantastic. I'm having a great day so far. Oh, you anticipated one of my questions already. I I didn't know like at what point you start sleeping at the Speedway. 
Well, I stay through pretty much qualifying weekend. So it, with things coming up with Thursday, Friday practice as we're as we're taping this and getting ready for qualifying, then I'll go back home for a few days and then probably come back out Thursday before carb day and then stay through Monday morning. It's just easier to be here and, and Beth will stay with me at some point in time as well. So so we kind of make a family a family fun of just hanging out here at the Speedway. But I can get stuff done and and I can sleep in a little extra in the mornings. If you don't mind me asking, where do you stay? I assume you're not glamping. No, I have a we. So, so where the driver motorhome lot is, where the drivers bring in their big, huge, expensive buses. My wife and I bought a twenty-five thousand uh, dollar little camper that that from Mount Comfort RV. So we laugh every time we pull in that the neighborhood association is going to have a meeting to kick us out of the neighborhood <laughs> association because we're the we're the we're the poppers in the neighborhood. But it it works out great. It's just got a little kitchen in it, a little bedroom, and a bathroom, and a shower, and it's just great to be able to just crash right here at the speedway and then sleep in a little bit and get up and go. And plus when I'm here, if there's something comes up in the middle of the night, I'm right here. I don't have to worry about heading from, from Zionsville back down here. Yeah. Don't say the word crash. Um, (laughs) So we're taping this on uh, Thursday, May 19th. This is technically the third practice day for the 500, but yesterday was a rain out. Uh, We're 10 days away from the race. When we get this close to the race, what are your days like? Is this basically a, a, a work day from the moment you get out of bed? to moment your head hits the pillow. Yeah. And we've really been in sort of workday mode for the last 60 days or so the last two months here, really seven days a week, outdoor facility, you're waiting for the winter to get behind you in Indiana and then everything trying to turn power on, make sure everything's ready to go. Our grounds crews, unbelievable grass. So working through, through all of those pieces. So we're definitely in work mode right now. The fun part about this work mode is it's actually an event day. So while you're working, you get an opportunity to see fans. You get an opportunity to interact with smiling faces and kids and people that come through the gate. And that's really what makes this so much fun is being able to see people enjoy the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. A few for the very first time, but many of them generational that have been doing it for year after year after year. And that's that makes the workday a lot more fun when you get to occasionally see those smiling faces. How often do you, are you encountered by a surprise? I mean, something happening that you didn't expect. Oh, every day. We've got something for sure. Actually, probably multiple things every day. Generally, the surprises are not major surprises, which is fantastic. But even in the open test we did in April, we had that surprise of the warm-up lane not being as as grippy as the rest of the racetrack and creating an issue for our teams. So we actually were working really hard on that the night that it happened because we had another day of testing. And then we worked on a whole bunch of that. So those are those are the big surprises you don't hope you hope you never have. But then we have little surprises all the time, whether it's a, a parking situation or customers in a grandstand that they find something in a grandstand that we missed 232,000 seats. It's hard to make sure everything's perfect. So we rely a lot on our customers to let us know. There's always those little surprises and that's what makes it fun. And, and that's what makes us, it makes it entertaining. And then we try to do our best to solve those problems for our customers. How are the, the pit in and pit out lanes? Did that get resolved? Yeah, it got resolved. So we got through our first test day on Tuesday, first practice day on Tuesday on the Oval since since our open test here. Seems to be a much better, much better place. We spent uh, probably 10 total days working on the warm-up lane after the open test, from power washing to roller brushing to scrubbing, just trying to get that last little bit of residual RPE that was left on the surface off. And then we took 120 Firestone Reds. Our friends at Firestone are so helpful. And the red tire is actually is a little bit uh, softer compound. And we actually t- were tire dragging for seven days where we put them on these machines and reverse roll the tires across. So it's, it's really taken everything off the surface of the asphalt that doesn't belong there. 
So our friction level was up about 25%, grip levels up about 25% from where it was when we ended the oval test. So still a little ways to go. We still have some work to do on it, but it's much, much better. And, and hopefully by race day, we'll be perfect. Is there any chance that the local TV blackout will be lifted this year? I think the only chance really is if we ended up selling out the facility. And that's kind of what we said all along. You know, in 2016, we sold out for the 100th running and went ahead and lifted the delay. And then in 2020, when we couldn't have anybody here, it was clear you got to let you got to let the the folks here uh, participate when the race is going on. So we did that. And as well last year, because we couldn't have everyone here. I think this year we'll have our biggest crowd we've had in the last 20, 25 years, with the exception of the hundredth running. And we're going to be really close to a sold out on the reserve seat side. The difference between this year and 20 uh, and 2016 in 2016, we sold out of reserve seats early May. We made that announcement. And then we sold tens of thousands of GA tickets between that uh, that point in time and the time that we actually lifted the delay. We're just not going to have the, we'll have a huge infield crowd. Don't get me wrong. We always do, but it's not going to be that massive, massive infield crowd. So I think it's, it's probably unlikely this year, although, you know, it's something that we look at every year and we understand you can make an argument either way, whether it's good or bad to have the, have the delay. So the 232,000 reserve seats, is that right? 232,000 reserve seats in 2016. We actually added back in about 3,000 reserve seats on the north end of the Tower Terrace where we have taken them out over the years and put and put them back in. So we, that race, we had 235,000 reserve seats, but we'll have 232,000 for this year. Okay. And how close are you to the 232 right now? Uh, we are inside of the last 10% of tickets, uh, reserve seats remaining. And I don't know where we are exactly today. My guess is we've got you know, 20,000 or less for sure. Okay. But you don't think you're going to sell those by race day? Uh, it's going to be really close on the reserve seats, but I, I don't think we're going to sell sell through those early enough to say, hey, we've got to sell out. Let's let's go ahead and lift the delay. OK. And is there a ceiling also for the infield tickets as well? In Not necessarily. To- in 2016, you could probably put 150,000 people in the infield. You know, we get almost 30,000 in the snake pit in that one small area inside turn three. Actually, we've doubled the size of it for this year. So it'll be a little bit more comfortable for those folks that are in there. We stopped selling GA tickets in 2016 because we were worried about the experience. And there were so many people that viewed that as a bucket list event and their first time coming was going to be a GA ticket. And we know by history, looking at the way that we do our post-event surveys, that the experience in the infield, unless you're just there to tailgate and party, if you come and you don't know any better, your experience isn't as good as a reserve seat. So we felt like we need to stop because we don't want people to come and have a terrible experience and never want to come back. So, you know, I, I don't know where, I think we ended up closer to a hundred thousand or so in the infield in 2016 and felt like that was probably maxing out what would allow you to have a decent experience for people coming. So, so again, the, you can put so many, it's 300 acres, right? So you can get a lot of people in here. So the threshold for lifting the local blackout is selling out all the reserve seats and then anything else. Yeah, so, some level of GA ticket. The question okay. is just what that, what's that, what's that level? Gotcha. Will the Indy 500 be available live on Peacock if you have the the premium package. So right now, I know that folks on NBC, uh, the intent is that it won't be, um, but I know they're working on, that's a new technology for them. So they're trying to work on on exactly how that looks. So I, could, I can't uh, affirmatively 100% tell you that it, that it won't be because I know they're trying to figure out the geofencing and the, those pieces of it. Mm. I believe that, you know, it's something that they're, they're focused on fixing. They're a partner with us in terms of helping us drive ticket sales. So, so that's a, a, an interesting piece. You know, the Peacock, the value of the Peacock, and I'm a Peacock's, Peacock subscriber. You get everything, right, for the six bucks a month. It's a fantastic value. So 
uh, we'll, we'll see where that ends up. But right now, I don't. the plan is that it won't be, but I don't know if exactly they're going to have the technology uh, at that point in time to make sure that that's the case. I've seen you say in, in previous interviews that your job as president is essentially customer service. Yep. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, on event days, for sure, you know, I laugh and people say, what's your job? And I'd say, I'd, you know, clean restrooms and pick up trash and then solve problems. What I mean by that is I, I walk around and talk to people. I, I really don't sit in a suite. I don't do the things that I think pe sometimes people think I do. So I'm the crazy guy in a tie and there's a whole story behind the tie. Right. But but I'm out with the folks trying to solve problems. So if there's an issue, I want to help our team that's in the trenches trying to fix it. If there's a customer that's got an issue. To the extent I can, I want to get out there and, and help solve those issues. The most important thing we have are our fans. And, the, and in order for them to keep coming back and keep bringing their kids and their grandkids and just building that fan base, they need to have a great experience. And when you put this many people in a relatively small area, and it's still 300 acres, but 300,000 plus people in 300 acres, a lot of folks, uh, you want to make sure that, that you're having good experiences. And, it's, and, and on race day, there's a lot of challenges. So I can't address everybody, but certainly that's one of the things I try and do. And, I, and we've got a team that's totally focused on that. History and tradition is what makes us special, but it's really the fans that make the Indy 500 what it is that bring people year over year over year. So many of them don't watch other races, but this is what they come to do. And it's and we need to make sure that we're putting on a show and an experience that they, they appreciate. Well, the other 364 days out of the year, there's also, I'm assuming, a customer service component and different ways to think about who your customers are. So, you know, it's funny. One of the questions I always get is, what do you do the rest of the year? So we have 100 and 100, call it 150 to 175 days where there's something happening on our racetrack, whether it's re related to the Indy 500 or our Brickyard weekend, or we have a Ferrari weekend and a Porsche weekend. We have all, a, a vintage race. We have all kinds of an eight-hour endurance race. You have to go on and on with events that take, that take place here. And we've got 200 plus full-time employees. So you're managing not just the 300 acres that's the racetrack and the 30 acres that's grandstands, but you've got a thousand acre campus here. So really trying to, you know, you're running a small business really is what's going on. So it, it is a full-time job. And really from January 1st to sometime in October, I probably don't take a day off. It's probably seven days a week. If I'm not here, I'm at least on email and talking to people on a Saturday or Sunday if I don't get here, but it's almost every day that I'm here. So uh, and it is just solving little problems. And we always learn, right? Every year we see things and we can make things better. And then we try and change things. And, you know, that also comes with unintended consequences. So you sit down and you go, okay, we changed this way of parking or this way of getting in the facility. Did it work? Did it not? What were the problems? What should we do next year? So a lot of after action stuff every time as well. At one point you said you make 10 calls to customers yep. on your way home every day. Yep. I've, I've I haven't been every day this this month, uh, probably two or three days a week, but in the off season, for sure, it's every day. It started in 2016 when we were leading into the 100th running. You know, I told our team, I said, we don't get an opportunity to have a 100th running without the fans. And I want to just do something easy and give me, ten, give me a whole list of customers. And then I'm going to call 10 every night on my way home and just say, hey, this is Doug Bowles. We don't get to celebrate the 106th running of the Indianapolis 510 days without you. Thanks for being a customer and thanks for making an effort because it's not easy to come to the Indy 500. It's a full day event. You got to figure out where you're parking. You got to walk. You got to sit in your seats. You watch an event. Then you go back, you sit in your car and you wait because of traffic and all that. It's, it is a huge event, not just monetary uh, commitment, not just monetarily, but time commitment and then introducing uh, new fans to it. So for me, it was a great way just to say thanks. But the best part for me is I get to hear the stories from people, how they fell in love with the Speedway, you know, who brought them there? What do they like? What are their biggest challenges? I learn an awful lot. I call from my cell phone. I don't block it. 
which I didn't think about early on. <laughs> One is when you call from your cell phone and you, and people don't recognize it, they don't answer. Right. That's how we are now. We spam. Yeah. So they, so they don't, and then they'll call me back when I leave a message, but I'm usually on the phone with somebody else. So I'm, so I, I make those calls that way. But the other challenging thing is I get so many text messages right now from numbers that I don't know from people that I've called at some point in time uh, that have questions or want to say something. So it's, I'm getting, you know, right now I'm getting like 350 text messages a day. So on race day, I wouldn't be surprised if I end up at, you know, 500 or more text messages from people I don't know. So it's really hard to, it's really hard to keep up with my, my text messaging. But the good thing about it is like last year, for example, I got a text message from somebody, we had a medical incident during one of our events during the NASCAR weekend on the, on the North side of the racetrack. And I was actually two stands away in talking to customers. So I was able to go help make sure the person got, got the medical attention he needed. We got him in the infield care center. Ultimately that person had to go to go to uh, IU health downtown, but there's good sides of it too. It's just, but it's just hard to keep up. That is my ultimate nightmare. <laughs> like I mean, like subscribers of the IBJ call me <laughs> about things related to the IBJ. How on earth do you keep up with 300 text messages? Honestly, I just don't. I mean, you, you can't, right? So it's really hard to do that. So a lot of times it's a matter of if I see it when I have a minute and I can respond, if, if I get it, you know, at nighttime when I'm going through emails, so it's just really hard to respond. And, but, uh, I don't know. The team, the team here often says you need to get a different phone to call people. And it just, to me, it just doesn't feel as authentic. So that's, yeah. that's what I call for my mobile. Right, here, this is my observation. I'm not sure anybody would argue with this. You've developed a public persona, not just as the president of the Speedway, but also I think like it's main evangelist. If you polled anybody who comes to the race every year or has even a basic understanding of the Speedway, I think they'd agree with the statement that Doug Bowles is not just an administrator. He is the Speedway's greatest fan. Now, you're a savvy public relations guy. Is that Doug Bowles a creation or is that really you? I'm a massive fan. I mean, I grew up caring about the Speedway more than I cared about just about anything. I was a massive Bay J. Foyt fan. Wasn't, al wasn't allowed to go to the 500 until I was 10. That was the rule in our house. So I didn't get to go to my first 500 until 1977. AJ wins his fourth that year, which, which as I look back, it's pretty cool, even though I begged to go before I was 10. And I went to Butler University because Butler was close enough to the Speedway that I could hear cars when they were tire testing and get over here as a journalism major pre-computer days. But we, I had one of those little portable like um, typewriters that had an LCD screen and it would store X number of characters, right? So I could start writing yeah, right. papers and that. So I would sit in my car in the museum parking lot uh, and watch tire testing. So for me, I'm, I'm a massive IndyCar fan, a massive Indian, more, more so of Indy 500 fan, a Speedway fan. And, and so I, and social media has been great for me because I can, the things I see that I get to do that I would, that I think, man, this is, I still can't believe I have this job. And as a fan, I would want to see this. So a lot of my social media is just really trying to take my love for the Speedway and my love for the Speedway as a fan and make sure I share it with other fans. So it's, it is not the only thing that's, that's not me, honestly, is if my wife is the A personality in our house. And if, if you were to take us to a party and drop us in a party with 50 people, we don't know somewhere outside of Indianapolis, I'm the guy that's going to sit in the corner and be quiet. But when I get a chance to, as you said, be an evangelist for the Indianapolis 500, it's, it, that's, that's, I'm in this spot. This isn't, this isn't Doug Bowles. This is Doug Bowles, the race fan speaking on behalf of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So that's, that's really that's really the only difference, I guess. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Mm -hmm. 
Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, Rebecca, this week's edition of the IBJ podcast and our fast-paced discussion with Doug Bowles, president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. All right, based on the timeline you just laid out here, you and I are the same age. So we started coming to the Speedway with our families uh, for the race at about the same time. You were 10, I was right around there. Paint me a picture of you coming to the Speedway for the race for the first time at 10 years old. I didn't sleep the night before. I couldn't wait. I was so excited. My mom had made sandwiches for dad and I to, to take with us in our cooler. We, uh, we got up really early to drive. We didn't know where we were going to park, but we got up early to drive to come. We had a Impala station wagon, you know, that we rolled out of the driveway in our, in our relatively new red Impala station wagon to come to this, to the speedway. And, and we parked in, we parked in the town of Speedway and one of the neighbor's lots. And we walked about a mile to the Speedway. And I still remember just coming in the old gate one, so excited with my dad, couldn't wait, you know, that just watching the people come in. And then the whole walk for, for us, we actually sat in paddock penthouse seats down towards pit in and just walking on the backside of the grandstands. Cause at that point in time, my experience for the grandstands had only been in the infield in the tower terrace seats on practice days and qualifying. I'd never, been on the backside of the racetrack and then walking up the huge steps to our seats and having my picture taken standing there. And it, it, it um, you know, I'm, I, I, w- I was a tiny little swimmer, you know, swimmer hair, the whole, and, and uh, just probably as awkward back then as I am awkward right now. I mean, it's just kind of who, who I am. It's my personality. And, and uh, just a magical moment. Remember just walking out with my dad and walking back to our car at, you know, AJ's won the Indy 500. I couldn't be happier. Just, Every day I walk in the speedway, whether it's an event day or a work day, I think of that moment because that that is that's really where my love for the place blossomed, really blossomed. I loved it before, but when you get that first experience and hearing back home again in Indiana and all the things that lead up to the Indy 500, it, when you do it in person, you just can't you can't explain it. And and that's really where it started. And fortunately, my dad's still with me, and I, we talk racing every day. And he comes out; he's out here every day, so I get a chance to see him. And but it, it really my experience is much like so many of our fans. It is an introduction that a granddad or a dad or a brother, somebody in your family brought you. And those memories live with you forever. I got to be careful about how I say this, because I do want to emphasize that my experience of the 500 as an adult is very different. But when I was 10 years old, I hated coming to the race. It was hot. It was incredibly crowded. It took forever just to get in. It was so loud. I thought my head was going to explode. I couldn't figure out what was going on during the race. Mm-hmm. I mean, all, all I was doing basically was watching the, the tower with the, uh, with the places of the drivers. And my enduring memory is of like 200,000 guys with their shirts off, which just mm-hmm. was too much for me at the time. You, you were, we were at the same race. You loved it. I mean, there's something about that experience that just had a completely different impression on you. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can have the experience you had isn't, I mean, people have that sometimes for their first experience. One of the things I think we're much better at today. And, and, and by the way, the reason I call people, you just, you just touched on some of the things it's hot. It takes a long time. All those, that's the reason I call and thank people because we all have that experience. So what you have, 
what you hope is that the, the rest of the experience sort of outweighs the challenges that it takes to be part of the 500. But, you know, today, fortunately, you know, when you and I started going, you didn't have headphones where you could listen to driver in car. You didn't have headphones where you could listen to the radio. You didn't have the video boards to keep you in connection with what was going on. So it was harder for sure to understand and follow the Indianapolis 500 when it was going than it is now. The other thing is, you know, I always tell people, they say, hey, what's what's your advice if I've never been before? And I say, go with somebody that's been so they can help you understand what you're seeing and what's happening. When you have that Indy 500 shirt, but it'll walk you through the process, it's much better. If you come by yourself, it's it can be hard really to understand what you're seeing. It's just cars going in circles, you know, all the things that that makes it so important when you have that that evangelist alongside you to help help you understand it. But it was, I don't know how it worked in the in the day. And and you know what? Those 200,000 people without shirts on, it still happens today. I mean, one of you know, people laugh at me. I, I wear a tie because I've, when they made me president, I said the brand deserves a tie. It isn't that I want to wear a tie. I'd rather wear a T-shirt if I could. But I put this tie on every day, and it reminds me that I, I've been given this platform that as a kid you could never have dreamed of. And I want to make sure every day when I put this on, it means, hey, you're no longer Doug Bowles. You are representing the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And, and that tie just reminds me of the of the, the, the pressure, I guess, that goes along with, with being that. And so you've got to be able to help those fans walk through and understand how important this place is. And, and you know, um, I have my suit on. I'm taking pictures with guys <laughs> with no shirts on, sweaty, gross, drinking beer. But that's that's their experience. And they love it. And I love the fact that for them, it's about coming out here and taking their shirt off and drinking beer and enjoying the Indy 500. That's I love every single walk of life that's here. And that's what makes it so special. Okay. Now we're going to have an interlude here where we ramp up the speed. This is green light racing. You yep. ready? I mean, this yep. is going to quick, quick answers. Lightning round. Favorite place to sit for the race? Turn turn one for the Indy 500 anywhere, lower or upper deck for the Grand Prix somewhere on a, on a spectator mound. Favorite driver who is not currently competing? Oh, AJ Foyt, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that that's always going to be my favorite driver who's not currently competing. And then Dan Weldon would be another one. Uh, who is the person connected to the Speedway that you still feel intimidated by? Oh, my goodness. Um Roger Penske is a little intimidating just because, you know, the history of him. He's also an unbelievable, unbelievably passionate for that. Uh, AJ Foyt. I mean, it's, he's still here and you just, especially growing up knowing AJ, AJ would probably be the guy that's the most intimidating. Uh, if you were uh, someday to win the race, have a mid, mid-career uh, uh, career change, what kind of milk would you drink? Uh, right now I drink, I drink any milk, but <laughs> skim, skim milk, I guess I'd take. I'm sort of a chocolate milk fan, but I, I, I go back and forth between two and Two percent skim right now. I'm on a skim kick, so I go. I go that way. Is chocolate an option? Is that I don't know option? if it's an option, but man, I'm 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 always been a chocolate fan, <laughs> so so I, I'd try. Uh, how many times have you kissed the bricks? Never. Never. Why never? Because I think it's for somebody that's actually for me. I, I'm not just a fan. I have a job here, and so I feel like you know I'm I'm not an Indy 500 driver. I'm not an Indy 500 winner. And I revere those people so much. So I haven't, I have said if my stepson Connor Daly were to win the Indianapolis 500, I'd probably kiss the bricks then. How many restrooms are there at the Speedway? Uh, if you take in the, in, into account public and the ones that are in suites, we're closing in on 400 restrooms. Have you been in each one of them? I have been in every single restroom along with Roger Pinsky and Mark <laughs> Miles here at the Speedway for sure. And, and I'm assuming you guys are doing like a very thorough inspection. We what in 2020 when we couldn't have fans, you know, Roger said, let's invest, let's make a difference while we don't have people here in the first place we started was restaurants. What is the current weather forecast for race day this year? I have not looked. I don't let myself get caught up in it because you can't control it. It's Indiana weather and a change. If I got focused on weather, I'd never leave my camper. 
What is the prize purse this year? It will be basically the same prize purse as 2019. We may change that a little bit. What, how much is that? I can't remember off the top of my head. What is Roger Penske like as a boss? Passionate, never stops working, literally 24 hours a day. He's focused on details like no one I've ever, I've, I've ever met. And he is one of those folks that he wants the people in the trenches that are actually doing the jobs to help make the decision. And that's one of the reasons I think he's so successful is he lets everyone have a voice. Is it, would it be unusual to get a text from him at three o'clock in the morning? No, it would not. W would you have to answer it at three o'clock in the morning? Um, you know, you definitely try. If, if you get a call from Roger Pinsky or a text from Roger Pinsky, no matter what time it is, I do sleep with my phone on my bed. And uh, that's one of the ones that I, that I don't silence at night in case he does call. You know, we were going to do a quick scan of your LinkedIn profile, but I mean, this is going to be, <laughs> you have had an incredibly diverse uh, career, but there's one transition that I thought was super interesting and shame on me for not knowing about it. You were uh, for a time, governmental and corporate affairs uh, director for Steve Goldsmith when he was yes. mayor of Indianapolis. Then in 1997, you went from uh, the city county building to being co-founder co-owner and chief operating officer for Panther Racing, which is a not insignificant, actually quite successful team yeah. uh, in what we now call the IndyCar series, which at various times uh, during your tenure included uh, drivers Scott Goodyear and Dan Weldon, who you mentioned, Thomas Schechter and Sam Hornish Jr., who in 2002 won the series championship. How did you get involved in that project? So, you know, I've been like, I'm a fan. I've been around racing forever. And I had an opportunity when I was actually working for Steve Goldsmith. Uh, he, we actually started uh, an effort to attract businesses to Indianapolis that were motorsport related. And then I started meeting an awful lot of people, a guy named Terry Lingner, Lingner Group Production, did a lot of motorsports television, started taking me on the road on weekends to do spotting for television broadcasts. And then I actually did driver spotting because I've driven a lot in, as well myself. And still, if, I, if somebody's silly enough to put me in their race car, I get in it. And then we had an opportunity to, I, so I spotted for a driver and a team. And then we had an opportunity to put a team together. And we got Jim Harbaugh and Gary Pettigo, who was a car dealer in the, in the market at the time, along with Terry Lingner and, and started Panther Racing. And, and uh, they asked me to help put the pitch together to get Pinsoil to be the sponsor. So I was still working for the mayor. And at night I was working on that. And when... Penzoil said, we're on. We want to start this new team called Panther Racing. I uh, communicated to actually the way that Steve found out was Robin Miller had found out. And was, there was a story. There was a story early in the star one morning. And Steve was notorious for not sleeping like Roger Penske. And I got a call about 530 in the morning as Steve was reading the paper. And I didn't know it was going to be in the paper. And he said, hey, you have something you want to tell me? I said, what are you talking about, Steve? He said, it says in the paper here that you're going to start a race team with Gary Pettigo and Jim Harbaugh. And that's that's so that's how it how it came about. And and uh I helped get the city budget passed in the fall of 97 and then left to go run Panther racing. We won two championships, 14 races. It was a, it was a blast. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing a dream come true. Uh, yeah, that was definitely a dream come true and getting in it. And for John Barnes, who was one of our partners there too, is a dream for him as a guy that started out sweeping floors and a mechanic forever. And to have the success we did and work with great guys like Scott Goodyear and, and Sam Hornish and then Schechter, just the craziness of a Thomas Schechter relationship. It was uh yeah, it was, it was amazing. Never would have thought that that would have been something that this little kid from Danville, Indiana, who wandered in as a 10-year-old this Speedway, that would get to do that. And then, uh, and then getting to do this is even, even a bigger, that's not a dream come true because you couldn't have dreamed of this job. Now, you left Panther in 2006, but Panther did continue. Why did. did you decide to leave? So I left in 2006 because I was on the road so much and, and 
when I married my wife, she had three boys and we had one together and the boys were in that age where I was missing a whole bunch of things with the boys and being at home. And, and so I left there full time in 06, went to work for an agency out of Atlanta doing marketing and PR and I'm a lawyer. So I ended up practicing law a little bit for some teams and some other things. And then, uh, I actually uh, sold my piece of the team in two, at the end of 2007. And okay. then the team did stay around, I think, through 2014. Is it fair to say that the 106 running of the Indy 500 is the culmination of this first phase of improvements to the track that Roger Penske announced in 2019? I think so. And you think about because we had nobody here in 2020 and you only had 40 percent in the grandstands in 2021, 60% of our customer hasn't seen some of the things that we've done since 2020. So once we get through, and that's where Roger's focus right now really is get through a proper season where we actually have a full house and do the things that Roger thought he was going to get to do when he bought the Speedway. And then we can start thinking about what are those next steps. If you remember in, in the fall of 2019, when he was announced, he talked about how he wanted to make this more of an entertainment facility and how are we going to use it in different ways we've sort of dialed back on that and really focused on let's just get the 500 right right now. And then we can start thinking about what the next steps. So I think the way you described it is probably fair. About the, those next steps. I mean, are there any sort of uh, ideas, at least in concept of, of what the Speedo would be like uh, as a more entertainment focused facility? Well, I think the next thing probably is how do we continue to make the customer experience better? So that's something uh, even more hospitality locations, changing up a little bit. Some of, some of the pieces that we have here to, allow for individual hospitality and corporate hospitality that, that's maybe a little bit better than it is right now. We really haven't had a hospitality change, a significant one since right at the turn of, you know, right in 2000 when F1 was coming. We made a little bit of an adjustment to our home and terrace club in 2016. But so working on that, definitely want to get a sports car race here and then begin to think about what are the next things uh, that, that we want to see here uh, at the Speedway. But we really, you know, we've got a lot of property around here, a thousand acres. What are we doing with that property? How do we work with the town and the city? to continue to close the gap between the 16 tech and the West side to really help the neighborhoods around us. Roger is really committed to trying to find a way to just continue to bolster these neighborhoods. So we'll, uh, I think that's really where we'll focus after we get through this year. Yeah. It's fascinating what other uh, tracks have been doing, either uh, adding tracks have been adding elements or they're being developed with new elements, including like residential yeah. properties. There's, I think the track in Kansas city has uh, a casino. They do. Are there any of those that are that are leading the conversations right now? So we're a little unique in the sense that we've had an entire city grow up around us over the last 113 years. So we were similar to like a Kansas or other racetracks that when they were built, uh, were built out in the middle of nowhere. So they could look at things and go, OK, let's think about this. Let's put a water park here. Let's put a big, massive hotel. Let's put a casino we're not, we don't have that luxury, right? We're, we are landlocked. So what we really are trying to do is sit down with, like I said, the town of Speedway and the city of Indianapolis and the Speedway and say, what can we do together? Um, or how can we invest alongside the, some of the goals that the city and the town have to make it better? I, I don't think residential probably works for us because we need all of the property we have for parking. It's a challenge for us. About 60% of our fan actually parks in a neighborhood somewhere. 40% are is on our property. So if you eliminated that, that makes the 500 even more challenging. But there are definitely ways we can continue to invest. You know, the property across the street where IndyCar is right now, the, the, the strip mall area over there. You know, oh, across, across there? 16, south yeah, side of 16th Street. Yeah. I'm from the main gate there. We just purchased uh, in the last month, we just purchased the building that was, as you come out of Tunnel 2 on 16th Street, Speedway monogramming, Jim and Susan Lubert had owned it forever and they were ready to retire. So we purchased that. So that begins to 
give us more property to start thinking about what's the front door look like. We work, we work with the town on their hotel and giving them some of the property that we have on the West end, right across the street so that they could accommodate town parking and hotel parking. So we we're trying to be good neighbors as well. And I, I think we'll uh, just begin to see, you know, see what's next once we get through this year. With the, the time we have left, I wanted to touch on the F1 situation. Uh, F1 racing series is very interested in expanding into the United States. Would F1 return to the Speedway in the foreseeable future? So I don't know the answer to that. We have had communications with F1 for a long time, but more so since Roger purchased the Speedway. He's got a great relationship with Liberty Media, who owns F1. Mark Miles has a good relationship with them as well. So we do talk to them in 2020 when the pandemic was hitting everyone and they were losing events. They were looking for a place to maybe host an event to make up for some that they lost. So we had great conversations with them in 2020. Ultimately, they didn't need it. We talked to them in 2021. And really since 2021, we haven't had a a, a robust conversation with them, continue to talk. We get a lot of fans who think we'd be a great facility for them. I think if they're going to be at three at three tracks in the U.S. with Coda and Miami, they just had for the first time this year, and then Vegas coming up next year, I think three is probably the number for them. Mm. We're still FIA grade one. We're one of only two permanent racetracks in the U.S. that are FIA grade one, and that just means we're at the level that F1 can come in here and run. It's, it's the top level of safety and performance and spec on the road course that, that there is in the world. And we keep it that way, A, because we think we're the greatest race course in the world, but B, because if F1 ever said, hey, we want to show up here, uh, they can come in. There's really not any modifications we have to make. I was talking to one of the IndyCar drivers who went to uh, the Miami Grand Prix at the beginning of the month, and he was blown away by the level of glitz and glamour and, and just high-end accessories to the event. And his comment to me was, well, this is what IndyCar and IMS should be doing. He's like, why don't we have concerts by Ed Sheeran and U2 for the 500? Uh, why can't we attract celebrities like LeBron James and Jamie Foxx and Tom Bradley and Pharrell and Aston Kusher and all these people who you know showed up at Miami for whatever reason, through whatever uh, deals they had with, with products that they sell or allied with. Is that something that is even possible for the 500? It's not as if you have not looked at over the years, having more entertainment. What do you think about the, the idea of, of trying to achieve a, more of an F1 level entertainment package? Well, here, here, here's, this is, here's been my philosophy all along. I mean, the Indy 500 is about the fans. It's about the 350,000 people, 325,000, 350,000 people that show up year after year after year. And they come for the experience, the pre-race they come for the racing that takes place. They come to root on a driver. They come because their dad brought him or their granddad brought him. That is what the Indy 500 is about. Do I think it's great that celebrities come? Absolutely. But I don't think we need the, the gimmick, if you will, of celebrities to make this the greatest race in the world. It is about the fans and that experience. So I, I appreciate what F1 does, but just having some of those folks walk your grid, they don't interact with your fans, to me, does not make a successful event. What makes a successful event is a fan who goes, that was a great experience because I remembered walking through with my dad in 1977 and, and this is what I do. So, so for us, our focus is less on that and more on how do we just focus on the, the, the people that come and the 33 drivers. All I said, our stars, our celebrities are those 33 drivers that qualify every year and get a chance to win the 85 run. Don't get me wrong, it's great to have celebrities here but you can go down a huge rabbit trail of going, this guy needs a plane. He's got handlers with him. They need to have a makeup artist. It's not just those celebrities that show up. I want celebrities. If celebrities are coming to the 500 
typically those celebrities come, they're not paid. They come to be part of the experience and, and they come almost as fans. So that's really the focus here for us. And then music, you know, our big music event is the, is the snake pit. If you look at our lineup for the snake pit this year is as strong as any multi-day EDM concert lineup there is. And that attracts 30,000 young adults who probably don't come to the Indy 500, but for the music. So if I'm focusing on what do I make special, I want to make the thing that brings that next generation of fan in special. And then I got to figure out how to make them race fans, not just music fans. Okay. We're done with the interview. Where Doug Bowles are you going next? I have a 10 o'clock that I'm 15 minutes late for, which is okay. Uh, I'm actually going to go meet the Butler basketball coach, Thad Modic, because I'm a Butler grad. So I'm going to go say hello to him because he's out here. So that's my next stop. And then uh, I don't know what's after that. Then I have, oh, we're taping a Behind the Bricks episode on concession stands. And then I'll probably start getting ready for gates to open. Oh, Behind the Bricks, that's the, the Speedway's own podcast or Yeah, that's what we've been doing blog. for a couple of years where we just try and you know show people things that they don't necessarily see or tell stories they don't necessarily like I did a thing where I actually tried to go under the, you know, I followed the creek into the racetrack and, you know, just some fun stuff like that. That's awesome. Well, yeah. I will let you go. Thank you for spending the extra time with us. That's yeah, no, I'm, I appreciate it. Thanks for the questions. This, was, this has been fun. My thanks again to Doug Bowles. And I quickly wanted to follow up on the property Doug said had recently been acquired on 16th Street. That's the former home of Speedway Monogramming which operated at that spot right across from Tunnel 2 for 38 years. Buying the property gives Penske Entertainment control of nearly all of the south side of 16th Street across from the track, a vast majority of which is parking, and thus a blank slate for whatever it decides to do to develop a greater sense of having a front door to the speedway. I have a story about the acquisition and the owners who finally decided to retire that you can find at ibj.com. Type Speedway into the search field, and it will be one of the top two or three results. Although, of course, Speedway news will be coming fast and furious this weekend. And we have another story about Penske Initiatives kicking off IBJ's print issue this week. Penske Entertainment announced in July 2020 that it planned to launch programs to diversify the IndyCar Series' teams, to hire more people of color as contractors and employees at the track, and to expand the sports fan base. Nearly two years in, experts and advocates say Penske has made progress, but there's still much to be done. IBJ's Mickey Shuey has that story. Also in this week's issue, as Indiana Republican lawmakers prepare to override Governor Eric Holcomb's veto of a law that would bar transgender girls from participating in girls K-12 sports, activist groups on both sides of the issue are ramping up their lobbying efforts. And Daniel Bradley reports that construction is starting on the first piece of a massive mixed-use development in downtown Noblesville that will add more than 200 apartment units by 2025. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say it is quite a bit easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. It works out to about $2 per week for actionable information you're not going to find anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. Thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. 
which is edited by Leslie Weidenbenner. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.